0: Okay, well, let's begin with prayer. Father, we come tonight to give you thanks that we can draw near the very throne of God because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come tonight to give you thanks that we can gather in Jesus' name. Father, that's why we are here tonight. We are here to hear your voice. We are here for His glory. We are here to ask for the work of the Spirit of God in us to make the truth real, to cause us to enter into the full blessing, which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're coming and trusting the time into your hands. Guide us by your Spirit. Speak to our hearts. Meet us in the area of our need, and we would trust you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the last chapters of the book of Isaiah. The last 27 chapters form one continuous. We said messianic poem. That's one way to look at it. It's the Messiah. It's who. It's what God has done. But another way to look at it with respect to the chapters comes from a, a passage at the very beginning of this section where God says to, He's speaking there, and He talks to Israel about the blessing that's there. He says, Behold your God. Behold your God. This is what our God is about. And this is uh, an extremely important passage or in section to understand the true work of God. Now, we're going to be in chapter 43, and it's a long section. It goes from chapter 43, verse 14, through to chapter 44, verse 8. And I just have to apologize. I like to really dive into passages, get down, down into the depth of them. The book of Isaiah, because of the way it's written, because of its poetic form, because of the way it moves, you have to take big chunks. If you, if you bury too quickly into a particular verse, you tend to miss what's actually being said. So we're going to go over a long section, but it is, it's a, it's a crucial heart section to the first nine chapters. Remember the book of Isaiah we said, or this section in Isaiah is, the twenty seven chapters are divided into three sections of nine, and in this first section the the overwhelming thought is the greatness of God as opposed to everything else that people trust. We, he calls them in the old testament terms idols we don 't tend to worship physical idols. It happens, but for us that 's not typical. But anything which replaces the one who is the true God in our confidence becomes the idol. It's the, it's the path of the human heart. And so the first thing God does in this section is to say, this is who I am, as opposed to everything else you're trusting. He's going to be moving to a, to a, a climax. It's, it's found later in this section where He's going to say, look unto me, all the earth, and be saved. Give up, as he says, give up on your idols. Look to me and be saved. That's where he's moving. And so he has this, this section. That's the one side of it. But it's another side to it. It's the promise. This is a section of promise in which God tells us what he is about to do. And this section we have tonight centers on that. Now, I said what I did concerning behold your God because in order to follow through the book of Isaiah, it, it is a little difficult, I admit, to read and Grasp. It's easy to hear and appreciate, but to grasp what's actually being said, it's a little difficult. Pay attention to what God says about himself as we move through. Isaiah has a habit of, when he enters into a new section or a new thought, stating who God is emphatically. So let's, we, we start tonight in chapter 43 verse 14. And this is what he says concerning himself, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Redeemer, Redeemer, and I thought now we're going to go through and and we at the top of the page, it says, behold, a new thing, because in this passage, in the section we're going to be in tonight is a pretty well known part of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah, or God speaking through Isaiah, says this, Don't call to mind the former things, or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I'm going to do a new thing, something new. I right, know that's what this passage is about. And I want to think about it in these three thoughts, that first of all, that what if, there's a promise concerning that new thing. And then he's going to go secondly to, What was Israel's problem? They have an old problem that has to be overcome. That's why we need a new thing. And then the third section, he's going to describe that new thing. So let's look at that together, and it goes straight through the passage. First of all, the promise that he gives concerning a new thing. Chapter 14, we go past what it says concerning who the Lord is, and this is what he says, "...for your sake," that's for the sake of the people of God." I've sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into ships in which they rejoice. what he's saying there is simply this. I'm going to end Babylon's reign. Now, again, just remember, for the sake we've been hammering this the whole way through, but I just want to keep reminding you. This was said about 50 years before Babylon even appears as a power. It's 150 years before the Babylonian captivity, that time when Israel was in Babylon, comes to an end. And so, again, as we read through here, it does jump around a little bit in time frame, but remember Isaiah's looking, in a sense, off into a fog. He is hearing information. We don't know how he received this message but he is he's not like he has already lived through the captivity and can tell you point by point what took place he's way back here looking out into the future and as he looks into that future he like jeremiah and ezekiel we'll talk about later on see the re, the end of that captivity and mistake it in a sense for another event that's way out ahead And we're going to talk about that and not mistake it, but they get it confused. This deliverance that they think they see here is actually a deliverance way out beyond it. And so it does jump in time back and forth a little bit. But let's listen to what he says. He says, I'm going to, for your sake, I'm going to bring Babylon to an end. And I want to make a point here at the beginning. It's real important to Isaiah. For Isaiah, we saw back along the way, he has no deep respect for powers on this earth. That is, political powers. Not to say he's a disrespectful person, it's just this. We think in terms of great nations, all right? I grew up in an era where Rome was presented. I had to take Latin, the greatness of Rome. It was all about civilizations and great people and great, great nations that have been back there. From God's perspective, there's only one thing happening on the earth that's great, and that is the people of God. Their history is important. The rest is just stuff that comes and goes. The Babylonians have come and gone. The Assyrians came and went. The Egyptians came and went. The Persians come and go. The Greeks come and go. These are all the people that interfere with Israel. All right. The Romans will come and go and on down the line. But God's work in the people of God just keeps right on going. Because, again, at the beginning, remember in chapter 40? He's talking about rulers. and He says, what scarcely have they been planted? Scarcely have they taken root? And he blows on them and they're gone. Because what's happening on this earth tonight that's very important is the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of it is relatively unimportant. It's just, a, it's just the stage on which the real drama, on which the really important work is taking place. And we have to keep that in mind. And God raises up kingdoms, and he puts people in places and uh, takes them out for his name's sake. But he says, for your sake. here's the, here's the Again, you've got to catch this. This is, this is like God saying, for the sake of, of the church, I'm going to completely destroy the United States. We think of the United States being a, it's a very important country on the face of the earth. But he's saying, I'm done with them now. I'm not saying that that's happening. I'm not saying. I'm just using this as an illustration. A fictitious illustration. But I'm saying that if he was done and our purpose with regards to his people were finished, he just put it out of the way. And that's no problem to him. Babylon was an extremely uh, powerful group of people. They were very advanced. What Nebuchadnezzar put together in very short order is absolutely amazing. And yet God says about him that he was there because he was an insignificant man that God raised up. When he was finished with him, he put them out. He put them out. So anyway, we don't want to go too far in that, but it does give you a feel for how Isaiah looks at things because there's only one thing that matters to him. What's that? What the living God is doing. Because way back at the beginning, what did we see? In the year the king Uzziah died, the king that he had really honored and thought was a great king, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. After that... Everybody else is insignificant. Okay, now he says this. <clears throat> I'm sure I've got the right page here. Okay, yes, in verse 15, he goes on to say this. I am the Lord your... Again, he announces himself. I am the Lord. And that Lord there is Jehovah. And I'm going to try to read through this passage every time it, it is Jehovah. Read it as Jehovah. Because so, Jehovah is the name that he called himself at the, at the time of the Exodus. That's how he designated himself to Israel. So he says, I am Jehovah. Your Holy One, he's speaking to Israel, the Creator of Israel, your King. That's who I am. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. Now, what he's saying here, is he's painting a picture. He's taking them back to an event they know. This is the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the moment when the Egyptians come out there. Why did Egyptians come out to the Red Sea? Why did they get to that place? Why, when the waters opened up, did they try to cross that that opening? Why did they go in there? And again, Isaiah using the same kind of thought as he did before. He's saying it's it's as if God just took them by a leash. He says, I'm going to lead you right out here. Right into the water we go. Okay, into here we go. Because they were no longer important. They had refused to enter into God's plan. If you're not part of God's plan, I don't care. Because God is completely committed to His people on this earth. That's very comforting to us. But the, the heart of God towards this earth is towards the people who actually trust Him on this earth. So he says that he, he, he brings forth. They didn't just come. God brought forth the chariot and the horse and the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again, and they didn't. They've been extinguished. Uh, they've been quenched and extinguished like a wick. And then he says a most unusual thing. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Now, the things of the past... Are the redemption that took place when God delivered His people from Egypt? That's the former thing, all right. Says, don't look back to that. Now, this is a very strange word because God had ordained in the law that every single year after the Exodus, Israel—it's called the Passover. All right, the Passover. Every year they were to stop and remember what happened when God, and this is what they are to say, they are to tell their children later on, That we were slaves in Egypt, but with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, He took us out. Remember that. The actual Passover ceremony is a very quiet ceremony. There's not a lot of preaching. There's not a lot of worship. You just quietly remember. And so these words, don't call it to mind and don't ponder it, go directly against what the law had already said. Why would God say that? Why would He say it? Here's what He said. Behold, I will do something new. I'm going to do something new. Now, just for the sake of, of making sure we don't get confused here, there is nothing wrong with remembering what God has done for you. He encourages us to do that over and over again in the Word of God. So he is not here arguing against that. That's not what he's saying. Nor is it true, or it is true, that God is always doing new things. And this verse is often used that God's doing a new thing. He's, he is always the God of the immediate present. And I count on that a lot. But there were great days. People sometimes look back at the great days when God swept across the nation in revival power. Okay, that's great. But the living God is here tonight. And he tonight wants to do a work in anybody who's ready to listen to him. It's no different tonight. He's always doing the new thing. And the new thing is an activity of God on this earth. He just doesn't do things to back up and watch them go. He is actively involved. All that's true. But when the writer, when when Isaiah says this, and God speaking through Isaiah says that I'm going to do a new thing, he's not talking about just a a new work. He's talking about a new work, which he is going to do, which is going to make the old work, which they were told to continuously remember, the standard of God's love and power on their behalf, it would push it right out of their mind because of the greatness of what God was going to do next. Now, because thats that makes sense, what's happening here, he says, you're going to forget this. Push this out because what I'm about to do is so much greater. And it has to be along the same lines as what happened in Egypt. And what's that? He redeemed them in Egypt. This is the new redemption. Now, what God's going to talk about now is going to take us to what Jeremiah calls the new covenant. Right? This is Isaiah's version of the new covenant. Right, It is the same thing that Ezekiel spoke about when he says, I'm going to sprinkle them clean. I'm going to sprinkle this nation clean. And then I'm going to put a new heart. I'm going to take out the stony heart from them. And I'm going to put a new heart in them. He speaks of it that way. That's his description of what's going to take place when God does the new thing. The new thing was not coming out of Babylon. The new thing. Is a thing which we know as the redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the new thing that's going to happen here. And I want to say this is the way I you know approach it. And I know there's a lot of different opinions in our day concerning Jewish things. But that's the reason I don't I don't keep the Passover. The Passover is obsolete. And that's what he's saying here. When this new thing takes place, what will the image... The, the Passover was very important. It was the most important event of the Old Testament. It is the most often referred to event that is in the history part. The most often referred to event, it was the most important thing. that is a picture of how God comes in and delivers His people. But it was only a picture. And there was a problem with the picture. And that's what he's going to go to next. Because he says, I'm going to... Do something. Note, it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert and the beasts of the field will glorify me and the jackals and ostriches and all that is very big imagery. All right. Always saying is there's going to be glory to my name because of what I do. And it seems to refer to how people all over the earth will be blessed because he gets in verse 21. He says this, and the people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. That's what they're going to do when I've done the new thing. Now, why is that so important? Now, I want to say that the next section, this actual section is the part of the book of Isaiah, which has become, it's the biggest part in my life. This was something I, I read before I was converted at Furman. I didn't even understand what I was reading. And now I look back and I realize what God was saying to me, and what I was doing. This is just a very important passage. Because right after he says all that he's going to do, he says in verse 22, there's an old problem. This is the second point that we're going to make. There's an old problem for Israel. And here's what it was. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, and you become weary of me, O Israel. There are a number of different ways that can be translated, but this is probably the best way to understand it. This is a problem. And the first problem is this people who have been called. They were taken out of Egypt. They had great opportunity and they did not call on God. They didn't choose to trust him. And to, to Isaiah, that is extremely important because there's only two choices in this life. According to him, you're either going to live a life of pride. Or you're going to live a life of faith. One or the other. If you don't trust God, you're living in pride and that's real dangerous. He says, yet you haven't called on me. And then comes the second part. But you've become weary of me. Now, what he's saying there, and and again, this one isn't difficult. (laughs) I was raised in the church, but I wasn't converted. Life in the church, okay, there were times when I would get a little sentimental about things and I would get all enthused about this or that or the other thing. But the fact of the matter was, for me, church life was tedious life. It was a yoke that was on me. You couldn't throw it off, but you couldn't enjoy it either. That was my, that was life for me. I don't know what it was like for you, but that was my life in Christianity. I know exactly what he's talking about here, about doing all the right things and the whole time you just wish you could get out of this. You're at the church service on Sunday morning. You're at the, you'd rather be playing golf, but you're going to go to church service because it's the right thing to do. And above all, you don't want to end up in hell. That was that was my my approach. I've told you many times. I don't want to go to hell. So I will do it. Now go to Wednesday night if that's what we have to do. And I'll be part of the MYF. That's the Methodist Youth Fellowship. And I'll have all those girls surrounding me. And I'll be the only guy that comes, shows up if it has to be. And and But, you know, I'll hand in my masculinity if it counts. But I don't want to go to hell. But I didn't enjoy it at all. And God the whole time knew that I don't like this. I am weary of the whole thing. As I said, I I left Greenville or I left Orlando, Florida, and or Winter Park, Florida, but anyway, and came all the way up to Furman University as the first step in unshackling myself from the burden of religion. See, I understand all about that. And if if you're in that condition, if you've been raised in the church and you're in that condition, I I know what it feels like and I know what the problem is. He says there's some other things. He says, you have brought me no sheep of your burnt offerings. That's the second part that's on there. It's a a lack of commitment. Now, the burnt offering was not, there's two different kinds of offerings in the Old Testament. Some of them were given in order to deal with sin. Sin and guilt offerings—they were—they were to deal with sin. But the burn offering was not one of those. The burn offering was, an, was a commitment thing. You made an offering to God, not to cover sin directly. It wasn't primarily about sin. It was the fact that you loved God and wanted to serve Him. You were going to honor Him as God, and so you brought this offering and you gave it. Right. So the offerings that he's talking about here primarily have to do with that thought that you're committing yourself to God. And he said, here's what has happened. You've gotten tired of the whole thing, and you don't bring them. You just don't bring them. Now, at this point, he's backing up, and he's talking about the entire history of Israel. As a problem comes up, technically, according to the law, you had to make the offerings in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem. And when they were in Babylon, they couldn't actually make a legal offering. So people say, well, how could this apply out there? But Isaiah's way back here, and he's not talking about the details. He's talking about everything that happened from the time of the Exodus right through until the time that they went into captivity. This is the story of the Old Testament. There's a terrible passage in the book of... Of uh, It's kind of a heartbreaking passage, but it's very important for us to understand if we want to do, understand what's going on in, in the Bible here. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, Moses, after the 40 years of, of wandering around the wilderness, is thinking back at how what God did when he brought them out of Egypt. And he goes back to this point point. he says, I, I brought the law to you and you said all that he says, you go up to God... Don't don't let us hear this anymore. We don't want to hear the voice anymore. You go up to God, find out what he wants, bring it back, and whatever you say, we're going to do. That's that's what he, he said that to him. And then Moses goes back up to God, and this is what the Lord says to him. He says, the people have done well in all they said. It's good that they honor me this way. And he says this, oh, that they had a heart to do what they said would that they had it in them to do what they said and the old testament is a history of what how far you can go without more help so every time you look at it and you say well boy why did those people do what they did i'll tell you i know why they did what they did how do I know what they, why they did what they did? Because before I was converted, before I had met the Lord and I was serving as a religious practice, I didn't have any more life than they had and I knew just exactly why they did it. Because they got tired of it. They got tired of trusting God. It's exciting for a little while, but not for very long. It's so much easier to live for yourself it's so much easier just to enjoy yourself. It's so much easier to go another route. So you got tired of me, he says. And he says this and you didn't commit yourself to me. You wouldn't bring that. And then he says something this is this is God speaking. Verse twenty four You have you have brought me not and this is this is really awkward because it follows exactly. You didn't bring me any sweet cane. Now that is a tough one. That is a really tough one. I'll just be honest with you. That sweet cane is not spoken about anywhere else in the Old Testament. This doesn't, so it's, we're kind of in a bind here as to knowing what is he talking about? But you see, it, it seems to, and the when he combines it with the fat, and I'm not going to go a long way into this, but he's talking about coming on a different level of commitment. You know, you can, you can get married and be committed to another person and be perfectly faithful to that commitment and not express any real love for that person. Any more than the commitment. You do the right thing. But what he's talking about here is that, that advance in a relationship to where you start to think about the other person and you start to do the little kindnesses for them. That you know that they like this or this instead of that, and that they like to sit in that chair, and so you yield that chair, and you just do it because it's what you do for them. It's, it's the little thoughtful things, we would call them. And he says, this is where, where I am. You're tired of me. You won't commit to me, and you don't have any love for me. I never receive from you anything. And then he he finishes by telling me what he gets from them. This is what I get from you. And this is the end of verse 24. Let me begin begin at verse 24 again. You have brought me not sweet cane with money. You You have not filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you've burdened me with your sins. That's what I get from you. Every time I come... All I get your sin. Now, he's not talking about the coming to confess it. It's just every time I get come into the midst, all I get out of this group is sin. That's way back in the beginning of Isaiah where he says, I looked for fruit from you, and all I found was wild fruit. You acted just like the people who never had a God. Your character was no different than their character. It's kind of a tough indictment there. And then he says this, and he's using exactly the same word here. You become weary of me at the beginning, he says. here's what I am. You have wearied me. You've worn me out with your iniquities. Now, what's God going to do about that? Here's a group of people that had all the opportunity, the unique opportunity to follow God, and they have failed to cash in on it. They just did not want it. Now, a few did. But when you realize how few people of faith are mentioned in the Old Testament, so there's just great stories of faith, and you realize that those stories spread out over 1,300 years by this point, all right, between the beginning when Abraham is called and when Isaiah speaks, there's 1,300 years. That's not very many stories. There's a whole lot in between where it's cold. What's God going to do about it? What kind of God beholds your God? Verse 25. And this is where he goes. This is the nature of the new thing. This is where it begins. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. How about that? Description of the grace of God is immediately, or is it? It's exactly parallel to the end of the new covenant, according to Jeremiah and their sins and their wicked deeds. I will remember no more. It's exactly parallel to what Ezekiel says when he says, And I will sprinkle them clean with pure water. I'm going to clean them up, my people. I'm going to do that for them. But I want you to notice the grace of God in it. Behold your God. <laughs> I said this a couple weeks ago, and I want to say it again. God doesn't quit on things. That should be one of the most assuring promises you have, that he who began the good work will finish it. We have our ups and downs. We have our bad moments. We have our better moments. But the one who met me at Furman University in 1972 started a work there and it will finish because of who He is. Behold your God. He's the Redeemer. He's the one who has done a new thing in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was kind of left to those people to carry it out. But the New Testament, testament the new covenant the new thing is an action of god in which he moves in steps in brings a man to himself and then finishes what he started that is tremendous that's why he says don't call to bind all that don't call it as, as powerful as it was as wonderful as it was that i took people out of egypt i'm going to do something more wonderful but it's not just that he has wiped out our sins We're going to go on to, we have to move right along here. He goes on to chapter 44, verse 1. That's the first thing, though, he is going to deal with sin. but now comes this beautiful part. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant. Now, remember that he combines these two very often in the book of Isaiah. But Jacob, his name means a supplanter. It's a crook. (laughs) We'll make it at that. He's a crook. And he became a prince with God. And when God calls Israel Jacob, He's reminding them of how far they've missed the mark by. (laughs) You were supposed to be something different than this, because I changed your name to Israel. So when He says says this, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant. That's very encouraging, because it reminds us that when we're flat on our back and we made the mistake, and and God is working there, it doesn't matter. And Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord, who made, you from, uh, who made you and formed you from the womb, and who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and, and you, Jeshurum, whom I have chosen. That's the same name. That's Jacob again. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Now, in this passage, we've already gone over this because it was in an earlier passage. And remember, Isaiah moves round and round. He goes over it again. He's back on this, this thought. But this time he pins down what's happening here. Because he says this, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring forth among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. And then once you hear this, this is where he's going to end in. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. All right. Those ones back along the way, what did you say about them? You say, but you become weary of me. You're tired of the whole thing. And again, I want to say, I know what that's like. I grew up in church and I know what it's like to be in a place where I didn't want to be named by that anymore. I did not announce when I got to Furman University that I'm a Christian. I didn't announce that I, I, you know, I go to church. In fact, I didn't go at the very beginning. It's only because I ran into Mr. Johnson and a few other people that hoodwinked me, kind of caught me and got me around, took me out that way. It was because there was a God pursuing me that I was found there. It's because he came to get me. All right? But here's, here's the important thing. I didn't want to be named by his name, but tonight I do want to be named by his name, and that's not a credit to how great I am. Because part of the new thing is he wipes out the sin. The second part of the new thing is this. He puts something new within. In Jeremiah, he said, I will take and I will write my law into your heart. I will write it on your heart. That's one way to express it. You remember we said this last year as we were going through the book of Hebrews where that comes up, that when Ezekiel says it, he says, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to take that stony thing. That thing that has no feeling for me whatsoever. I'm going to pull that heart right out. I'm going to throw it away. And then I'm going to put into you a heart of flesh, one that beats like a person, like you understand, a, a person that has a heart for another person falls in love. Yeah, I'm going to put it in there and you're going to do this. Here's the way Isaiah describes it, and actually the Lord picks this up in the New Testament. He says, Here's what I'm going to do in the new thing I am going to pour out my spirit upon you. I've seen the, the uh, Death Valley desert. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's hot. Go in the wintertime. Alright, that's all I can say. It was, it was extremely hot and they told me it was a cool day. It only got up to 100. And I was very thankful for that. And it's a lot of stones and rocks and sand and emptiness. Not much out there. Because it sits in a bowl. It sits in a bowl. It's way down in the ground. It sits in a bowl. And there's high mountains all around it. And the waters, the, the rains coming off the Pacific Ocean, which keep the, the mountains and those big trees, it, it cuts it all off. And all the rain falls down below. And it doesn't get ever get into this desert. At least it mostly doesn't get into that desert. But every once in a long while... The rain builds up enough that it pushes over the top and it gets down in that valley and it rains down in there. And when that happens, the entire valley erupts in flower blossoms. It's, it's the most incredible thing. I have pictures of those, those same rocky fields covered, just covered with blossoms. The seeds just sit there and wait year after year for that moment when the water will get to them and they can and they can germinate and they can grow. Everything is there except for the water to make it work. God speaks to us here. He says, This is what I'm gonna do when I do the new thing. The picture he gives is I'm going to come on you with my spirit and I'm going to rain on you. And when I rain on you, you will come to life, not because of what your commitment is, but because of my saving power. This is tremendous. This is the new thing. That's the reason we forget that old, old thing back there and let it go. Keep with the new thing. I want to do this, he says. I want to do a new thing. That's why, again, this is, my testimony. I sat with Mr. Johnson or stood, we stood in our our, our dorm room one day and I was trying to go to all these Bible studies and all the rest of it and I just told him, he could probably, I don't know if he remembers it or not. I said, I just don't know if I can go on with this. And this is what I said. I was describing myself. I said, I'm just not the spiritual type. Well, I wasn't. I was the dead type. You see, I thought it was a matter of how much effort you put in, how well you disciplined yourself, how much you could stir up a love for this like you were doing a hobby or something. And I had put the effort in and it had not broken past the weariness with the whole system. That's why this is so extremely important to me. And God was speaking to me from this passage, but I didn't get it at the point. In 1972, in the spring, the rains came. And I came to the Lord and said, you know what? It's never going to come out of me. I am never going to be able to do this. But I don't want to go to hell. And you said you were the Savior. I'm not committing. I'm not promising anything. I'm just saying, here's the wreck. It's all yours. And if you want me to die tonight right at that moment, I didn't care. All I care is that I'm going to put in you. And the rain came. Now, I'm not trying to preach an experiment. I'm just saying the truth. Of the matter is, I came to life. A new heart was there. New desires came into my life. The desert bloomed. The power of sin began to break and be broken. Not because I was more disciplined than I was before, although I, I guess you are more disciplined, but I'm more disciplined because there is a new power within. Christianity is not about a set of laws which I give myself to. It's not about principles that I try to apply in my life, although there are lots of principles. It is about new life in Jesus Christ. Paul's formula for living is you died with Christ. You've been raised to newness of life. That's what we celebrate in a baptismal ceremony. Not that a person's made a commitment to follow Jesus, but that God has caused him to be identified with Jesus Christ to the point where he has died and now he has got a new life. That's why I'm here tonight. If I had not been born again, I would never have made it this far. I can tell you, I don't think... I would have been following Christianity two years after I left the people that were pressing me because there was no pressure that way. What happened to Israel happened for our learning. It isn't in you. All flesh is grass. It is absolutely hopeless to try to discipline yourself into loving the Lord. What's he say? You've got to call on me. Call on me all the ends of the earth. And be saved. Call on me and be saved. Save from what? Save from yourself. Save from the hollowness of your own being. Save from the, de- not just depravity, but the emptiness, the deadness. And that's what he wants to do. But that's not the end of the, that's not the end of the blessing. That's not the end of the purpose. So let's go on to the third part of it here. Not only does he give them new life cause them to be born again to the point where people who didn't want to used to be identified now say, I'm going to write God's name. It's, it's almost a tattoo thing. You know, I'm going to put tattoos on me. It says, I'm the Lord's. I'll put it right here.
1: <laughs> now it's, not,
0: now it's we're not hiding anymore. We're putting it right out. Now, don't do that. But anyway, the point is this, that they become very bold in their love for the Lord. But then he says, goes on, verse 6, and again he announces himself, and thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his Redeemer, the one who redeemed us. The Lord of hosts, I'm the first and the last. There is no God besides me. All those other things I would have turned to, and I I really did want to have, they weren't gods. The freedom I wanted, the experiences I wanted, the respect I wanted, all the different things that I wanted, they were not God. There is no God besides me. Now he speaks to those who've been redeemed. Who's like me? What do the redeemed say? No one. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. Now he's going back to what we've been over the last few weeks. He challenges the gods to prove that they're gods, but he's pretty much won the fight here. Um, Let them recount it to me in order. And from the time I established the ancient nation, he's talking about Israel there, and let them declare to them or... Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. And he speaks to Israel, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? Haven't I told you what's going on? You know, we have the word tonight. We know where things are going. No reason for us to be concerned about all the details of what's happening on this earth because we know where it's going and we know who counts if we can trust ourselves to God. And then he says this, Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And then how about this? And you are my witnesses. And this is the third part that I want you to get. You are my witnesses. When God went into, into Egypt, he showed who he was himself by destroying the gods. Right? The Israelites didn't do it. He did it. And he, and he showed Himself to be something. And He took them out. They failed all this time. But when He does the New Covenant, it's interesting. He doesn't do the miracles that He used to do back there. He doesn't perform those kinds of things. He doesn't come out here and... Dis- he doesn't do magic tricks for the human race so that they'll know that He's God. You know what He does? He takes dead men and makes them alive. And they become the testimony to the reality of who He is. That's why I want to say again, as I have numerous times here, I realize that there, are, there have been times in Christianity when they have pressed my part to the place where it just became a work. But we cannot shift to the other side and say that the only thing that matters is I've been forgiven of my sins. It desperately matters that I display on this earth the evidences of a new life, which is not displayed by some set of rules, but is displayed by the living Christ in me, enabling me to live above selfishness and start to be to people what I ought to be. If that doesn't come across to the people who watch, how will they know that the truth of God is true, that the reality of salvation is there? You are my witnesses. How are you my witnesses? You are going to witness to people of what he has said. That's part of what he's been going over. But you're also going to witness to what he has done. That's one of the biggest parts of our job is to tell people, this is what he did for me. And what are we going to tell him he did for us? We're going to tell him I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and he made me alive. I'm not a perfect man, but I am alive. And I know I'm alive, because I remember what it was like to be dead. I remember what it was like to try, and you couldn't generate the love. You couldn't, you couldn't get the desire there. You could go through the prayer meetings, and you're all the time going through prayer meetings like this. Yeah, I went to them all, yeah. And all I wanted for him to be was over. And it suddenly is different when, a, when God changes a life. Has he changed your life? Has he given you new life? That's the, the big question here. And again, I want to say, it's for that reason that What we forget all the old things that have been done. And our job is to remember this. Don't come ponder that. Do what? I'm going to do a new thing. I've done a new thing. He's done it in Jesus Christ. In the next section of Isaiah, we're going to look at the person who did it. This is the promise that he's going to do it. In the next section, we'll get to the the person. But that's how it was accomplished. There was a day when Jesus Christ died. And in one afternoon, he completely changed the opportunity of the entire human race. So what's God's appeal to us tonight? Just make sure for it. If you, haven't, if you don't know that life, what does he say? Call unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. That's what he's after. That's all you have to do. You don't have to bring anything. You don't bring it because you can't bring anything because all flesh is grass. It's all dying. There's no life in it. But you bring to him what? The one thing you have is a wreck, and you put it in his hands. You entrust yourself to him To save you, and he'll wipe out the sin, and he will give you a new life by the Spirit's enabling, the Spirit coming upon you, and then he will make you part of the program of God, the thing that counts. You have a joy, the joy of entering into the program that counts for all eternity. It's a tremendous passage. It's Isaiah's version of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come and ask you to meet each one of us. Father, you know need. You know tonight everyone who is still empty and thirsty. And I would ask that you would work graciously in their life to bring them to yourself, that they might know the glory and the wonder of life in Jesus Christ. We ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.